May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable in thy sight, for thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This past uh, week and a half, it's been Ash Wednesday for everyone, hasn't it? What do I mean by that? Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Therefore, repent and believe. It's been on everybody's mind, the coronavirus, the bans, the states of emergency, the executive orders, emails from all corners, probably hit your inbox as they hit mine this week. This is canceled. This is closed. This is done, right? For three weeks, school's out. The message is coming to us loud and clear. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And it's interesting, as that message, which we liturgically say on Ash Wednesday, kind of hits home with a pandemic, it's interesting what people's reaction is, isn't it? Some hoard toilet paper, right? We do lots of ridiculous things. But what we ought to do is turn to God, of course. And so I'm glad that you're here this morning, and I'm glad that those of you who felt that you weren't able to be here are seeing us on Facebook Live, because we need to come together as the church in these times, not just for our own sakes, but for the sake of our society, for the sake of those around us. Perhaps it's providential, I think so, that we have the readings that we have today for the third Sunday of Lent. I invite you to open with me to our first reading. It's in the book of Exodus, chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. Exodus Chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. Because Exodus, this passage, shows us several things. But first and foremost, it shows us that God is with us, right? Whether we see him or obey him or not. Look with me at verses 1 through 7. All the congregation of Israel moved on from the wilderness of, the, of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. But pay close attention to verses 2 and 3 of this passage. Look at the people Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, 
Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? You know that this incident of their grumbling and quarreling is not an isolated one. If you've been doing the daily office readings this week for morning prayer, or is it evening prayer? I keep getting them confused because I alternate it. I think it's the morning prayer um, lectionary readings. You know that this is not an isolated incident, right? What's going on, those of you that have been doing those readings in the previous chapters? What's going on? Is this their first request? Is this their first quarrel? Anybody? I know some of you are reading. The East Side does that, right? Yeah. So, no, it's not. Thank you, Phil. No, it is not the first time. Not at all. Not by a long shot. And in these past chapters, what do they ask for? They ask for bread, they ask for meat, and now they ask for water. And in any of those times, does God not respond to their request? Does, not, does God ignore them and say, eh, tough, guess you're going to die. Enjoy that wilderness there, guys. No, not at all. It is true that God's wrath is kindled against them because of their grumbling and their quarrelsomeness. But God provides for them. And though they disobey and gather manna from heaven on the Sabbath day at the end of chapter 16, God still provides for them. All of that happens before today's lesson. So you can see Moses' frustration with his people. Why is he frustrated? Because they continue to test God when they've been given ample demonstrations of his goodness and mercy and love for, uh, for them as his people. You see, Moses' frustration is not irrational. It's the people's actions and reactions to their need that's irrational. Moses chastises them and says, why do you put God to the test? He's not so worried about himself. But why are they putting God to the test? Now, the Hebrew word behind this word test is an interesting one. It means challenge, test, contention, or prove. You heard it in the Vinaiti as we said it today. Why do you put God to the test? Why do you ask him to prove himself? What does this test mean, though? Let's dig into that a little bit this morning. Look at Psalm 78 with me, which is not scheduled for today. But look at with me. You've all got prayer books, so you can open up to Psalm 78. Um, the section I'm looking at is 78 verses 19 through 23. So you can see that on page 369 of your Book of Common Prayer. Page 369. Or you can look at it in your Bibles if you have your Bibles with you. What's going on in this psalm? This is actually the psalm, psalmist recounting the events that we're reading here in Exodus today and giving a theological analysis on them. 
So look with me at 19. We're using scripture to interpret scripture, which is what we do as Anglicans. They tested God in their hearts, verse 19, and demanded food for their craving. They spoke against God, saying, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Indeed, he smote the stony rock, so the water gushed out, and streams overflowed. But can he give us bread also or provide meat for his people? When the Lord heard this, he was full of wrath. So a fire was kindled against Jacob, and there flared up fierce anger against Israel, because they did not believe in God and did not put their trust in him. And the psalm continues, but we'll leave it there for the moment. Because they did not believe in him or trust in him is the theological reflection that the psalmist gives us on this Exodus passage on what's going on in 16 and 17. So you see the problem. These people contending and grumbling and testing God is coming from a heart that is, that is wrong, which is said earlier in the psalm, that is misguided. These are signs of deeper problems in the people of God. These are signs of deeper problems. Number one, well, it's said, they're being overcome with fear. They're being overcome with fear. Number two is also stated, they're not trusting in God's goodness. They're not trusting in God's goodness. And I'm sure you can see that these two principles apply not just to the people of God in the Old Testament, but of course to us as the church, as a nation, Let's keep going. The two are connected, fear and not trusting in God's goodness. We fear because we don't trust, simply. Contrary to popular thought, fear, however, is not a sin. It's not a sin. Fear is an emotional reaction to something. And sometimes that fear is very logical and very rational. It's a healthy fear of self-preservation. Let me give you an example uh, from my own life. You know, Bridget, my daughter, has turned eight months today, and she has no fear of falling. Leah told me that she's read in baby books that it's not just Bridget, but this is the, the situation of most babes her age. She has no fear of falling. Why? Well, simply because she's been held her whole life. She sits on the ground, and at most she topples over a little bit, right? But is that lack of fear actually a good thing? No. A fact that I'm reminded of every time she tries to roll off the changing table, right? If I just let her act on her feelings, she'd topple to the floor and get hurt. That type of fear is rational and is good. So think about it. As a child, you might have experienced an irrational fear, right? We've all probably got these stories, but I'll share again one from myself personally. I had an irrational fear that there was a monster in my closet. Did you guys ever have a fear like that when you were little? That there was a monster in your closet or a monster under the bed. And this fear would get the best of me for a season of time. My dad and mom would come up and say goodnight to me, and I'd freak out. Oh my gosh, the monster's going to come and get me. For a while, 
my dad kept reassuring me, son, there's no monster in the closet. You don't have to worry about that. You know, he tried to reason with me. You know, we fear things that we don't understand or that we don't know. And sometimes that is irrational. Sometimes it's not. But we also fear sometimes because we fear the ability of someone to protect us. And in this particular situation as a boy, I was afraid because I didn't think my dad could protect me. He finally caught on to this. He's a brilliant guy. He's not here today, so I can say that, right? He's a brilliant guy. And instead of just trying to reassure me, one night, after he wished me good night, he said, I, you know, and we went through the usual back and forth, if there's a monster in the closet, I can't go to bed, ah! He said, I'll show that monster. And he went into the closet, opened the door, got into the closet, started punching the wall and making all sorts of noise and saying, ah! And then he came out and monster won't be bothering you anymore. I've taken care of him. That action did more than all the reassurances that I'd been given for months before. Why? Because not only did I know that my father loved me, I knew that he could do something about it and that he was greater than the thing that I feared. It's still a story that sticks with me because I think it says a lot about who we are as people. And God, our Heavenly Father, is not so much different than that story about my earthly father. But why do we fear? Why are we afraid? Why do we quarrel with God? Two reasons. Number one, Sometimes, often, we question God's ability or power to care for us, don't we? We might not question his love for us, but we question his ability or power to care for us. However, secondly, we might fear because we do think that he's almighty and all-powerful, but that he doesn't care for somebody like me. We question God's love for us, too. And taken together, those two things are what drive the people of Israel, called Jacob in the psalm, to fear and quarrel and panic. Number one, they don't think God can do anything for them. And number two, they doubt God's love. Look, the psalmist says it. They tested God in their hearts. Verse 19, they demanded food for their craving. They spoke against God saying, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Oh yes, he did this. Oh yes, he did that. But can he do this? You see? And what is Psalm 95, the scheduled psalm for this morning, which is also the Venite, saying to us? What's it saying to us? Why do we read that in morning prayer every day? Do you know why? Look with me at Psalm 95. It's either in your scripture insert or in your prayer book. Psalm 95, verse 8. What does God say to us? Today, if you will hear his voice, 
Harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness when your fathers tested me and put me to the proof, though they had seen my works. Harden not your hearts, friends. Don't refuse or don't refuse to trust in God despite the evidence of his power and his love for you. You see, what's worse than that, what's worse than fearing and not recognizing his power and his love for you, is if you make a habit of that, Scripture tells us it does something to our hearts. What's it do? Hardens them. It hardens them. It hardens them to God. And actually, it has really bad consequences. You read the rest of Venite and the rest of Psalm 78. When your heart becomes hard to God, it doesn't take away his power or his love, but it takes away your ability to receive his love. It doesn't take away his grace for you, but it takes away your ability to walk in his grace. Last week, Deacon Mark preached about original sin. Today, Deacon Mark's not here because he may be infected with the coronavirus and has self-quarantined. But Deacon Mark gave us some wise words when he talked about original sin. He talked about what it was, and he gave us things from Article 9 of the Articles of Religion, which reads this way. Now, bear with me, it's old language. Original sin standeth not on the following of Adam, as the Pelagians do vainly talk. But it is the fault and corruption of the nature of every man that naturally is engendered of the offspring of Adam, whereby man is very far gone from original righteousness and is of his own nature inclined to evil, so that the flesh lusteth always, contrary to the spirit, and therefore in every person born into the world it deserveth God's wrath, damnation. That's our natural state. That's what original sin does to us. We stand deserving of God's wrath. Not just because of the things that we do, but because of who we are. The fact is that all human beings are fearful. Irrationally fearful. And all human beings are foolish. All human beings do not see clearly the power and love of God. And when they do, they quickly turn away from it. That's our natural inclination. It should be different with Christians. That's why morning prayer has us read Psalm 95 every day. Hard not your hearts. You should be different, friends. You should be different. We're talking a lot this week about disease and infection. And it's interesting that Article 9 of the 39 Articles of Religion uses that language to talk about sin. I'll continue with it. This is from the article. And this infection of nature, this infection of na nature, doth remain yet in them that are regenerated, whereby the lusts of the flesh, called in the Greek, and I'll skip that, which some do expound the wisdom, some sensuality, some the affection, some the desire of the flesh, 
is not subject to the law of God. And although there is no condemnation for them that believe and are baptized, yet the apostle doth confess that concupiscence and lust hath of itself the nature of sin. Okay, that's a lot of fancy old language. But what's it saying? That sin is, original sin has affected all of us, in us. Right? It's not just out there. It's in here. It's in our hearts. There is this natural inclination to do things wrong and for things that are wrong and things that are not in God's will to actually be more attractive to us. You see, it's not a 50-50 gambit. It's not like you've got the angel on one side and the devil on the other. No, it's like more like a 75-25 or more situation. We are, in our desires, naturally sinful, even as those who have been baptized, even as those who have the Holy Spirit. So we struggle against that every day. What did we hear in St. Paul's epistle to us in Romans? We heard him say, what has happened to the world? That we're hardened to God's love, that we're hardened to the knowledge of God, and therefore God gives us over to these inclinations, to these passions, to these affections. It's why it's so important for the church to say, no, that's wrong, which the church has been negligent in saying lovingly in the past. But that's another sermon. Let's stick with this one. There's many intricacies we could talk about. We could go down what a disor- roads about what a disoriented desire or affection is. But they all have a couple things in common. Number one, they are all inordinate. What does that mean? It means that they're all extra powerful in our hearts. Right? So our appetites to do what is wrong is extra powerful in our hearts because of our sinful nature. Number two, it means that our affections might not even be right. That what we think is right, what we think is good for us, what we think will make us happy might be completely off. And that's the the trouble today, right? Is that if the church doesn't say, no, those things are wrong, then people get off the road and will never find their happiness in Christ. But look with me at Psalm 78 again. Back on page seven or page 369 in the prayer book. They tested God in their hearts and demanded food for their craving. Verse 19. Verse 30. So they ate and were filled. For he gave them what they desired. Verse 37. For their heart was not fixed on him. Neither did they continue steadfast in his covenant. But he, verse 38, but he also was merciful that he forgave their iniquities and did not destroy them. You see, the problem is our cravings, our disoriented affections, our sinful nature. And yet, even in this, God is merciful. Before baptism, you and I were entirely lost in our, to our cravings and desires. After baptism, we struggle with them, and we continue to struggle with them. 
Paul talks about this in his epistle to the Romans later on, in chapter 7, verse 24, when he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. What's St. Paul talking about? The fact that he, St. Paul himself, is struggling. But that's not the end of the story. Our gospel tells us of the joy of the woman that Jesus meets today. Notice, would she be joyful if Jesus had explained to her all of her affairs as he did in verse 29, if that was the end of the story? No. That'd be not so joyful. But rather, she is joyful because she's found him to be what? Her savior, her liberator, her victor. Her heart, hardened by her cravings, has been healed and is being healed. She sees that Jesus has saved her from the sin that trapped her. She's able to proceed in life and see his goodness, his love, and his mercy. See how he starts infecting, how he starts rather perfecting her infected nature. Friends, in the midst of the pandemic that we're facing, there's actually a much greater pandemic. In the midst of this virus, there is a worse virus a worse infection, an infection of the heart, an infection of sin. But in Jesus, you and I have the victory over it. True, we will wrestle with our affections and with the sinful nature until we die. The important thing is we continue to confess them, that we continue to identify them, that we ask God for his forgiveness, and that we ask him for his intervention, that we actually seek his healing. The infection of sin is far deadlier to you than any virus, because sin can kill your soul. A virus can only kill your body. As a priest reminded me this week, only three short weeks ago, we said, remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. The world is facing that reality. We are facing that reality. But we ought to face it differently than the world, and we ought to call the world to face it differently. While we should be prudent, we should not be afraid. In the early church, the church grew exponentially because it was the Christians who stayed during the plagues and during the pandemics. It was the Christians that ministered to people that others abandoned. It was the Christians who realized that the worst thing that can happen to us is not the death of the body, but the death of the soul. It was Christians who trusted in God through all of that. And here's where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? This plague is nothing like plagues of the past, is the truth. It's nothing like the Black Plague or the Bubonic Plague. It's nothing like Ebola. It's nothing like the things that we've seen. But 
Don't let the plague of fear and mistrust take hold of your heart. This is a time when we must ask, do I really believe in Jesus? Do I really believe as if I died tomorrow, everything would be okay? Do I really believe that Christ would hold me in his arms? Do I really believe that he'd take care of my loved ones? Do I really believe that Jesus would be in my absence? Do I really trust Jesus with all of my heart and all of my life? It's an opportunity for us. It's also an opportunity for us to come to the world and say, what would happen to you? Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Pandemic or no pandemic, nobody gets out of this world alive. So, what have you done about it? Have you met Jesus? Have you met Jesus? Have you repented of your sins? Or have you hardened your hearts? Finally, I'll leave you with the words of St. Paul from Romans chapter 8. Because in this, we can put our full stock, our full trust and belief. St. Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Verse 37, no, in all these things we, have, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is something you can bank on. Put that in your heart. Walk in it and share it. Because others can come to that too. Amen.